The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Will it be more tech troubles or a turnaround Tuesday? NASDAQ futures hanging in there right now after Monday's big drop. Many big tech names now down six of the last seven sessions. Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp back up and running after their longest outage in a long time. This is the Facebook whistleblower testifies in D.C. altogether spelling trouble for what has been a stock so far immune to bad news. More trouble in Chinese real estate as now another major property company is skipping the bill on a debt payment. Are they the ultimate insiders? A now formal inquiry into questionable stock trades by Federal Reserve officials. And do you need a little good news? Well, who doesn't? Your morning RBI lays out why history says, despite the last few days, it might actually turn out to be a good few months for stocks. It is Tuesday, October 5th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Good Tuesday morning. Let's get right now to these markets after big tech took a punch to the gut yesterday. Selling, though, not following through today, at least not for now. We are seeing futures holding up. In fact, they are higher. NASDAQ futures are the ones to watch, not Dow. They're actually up 71 points. Now, needless to say, Monday was not a good day for most tech stocks. That is not editorializing. Check out some of these random stats on the NASDAQ. It fell more than 2%. That is a huge move for that index. Only 11 NASDAQ 100 stocks rose on Monday, and 33 of those fell more than 3%. Ouch. Guess what? News and cable companies actually did well on Monday. In fact, one of the only up stocks, the best performing name in the NASDAQ 100, was Fox. It rose nicely. What else worked on Monday? Well, not much, but fear did as the VIX moved higher. Right now, the VIX index is actually down a couple of percent, about 2%. Crypto also did well as a haven. Bitcoin kind of slogging and clawing its way back toward 50,000. Right now, it is up again, 679 to 49,873. Cryptocurrency products and funds recorded inflows for a seventh straight week last week. That's according to CoinShares. Inflows to the sector, more than $90 million last week alone, and it could be today. You never know. And Bitcoin breaks back above 50000 Something to watch. Well, we are going to get more of these volatile markets in just a moment. But right now, let's get you caught up to speed on some key headlines happening this morning, including Facebook finally restoring service after a long outage Silvana Hanau is here now with that and more. Good morning, Silvana. Good morning, Brian. Brian, that's right. So Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp are all back online 
after suffering a major outage for more than six hours for some users yesterday. In a blog post, Facebook says the problem stemmed from a configuration error impacting its data centers. All three platforms stopped working just before noon here on the East Coast and marked the longest outage for Facebook since the 2008 outage that knocked the site offline for about a day. Facebook employees and contractors tell CNBC they, too, were unable to access their work accounts internally. This all comes ahead of former employee and whistleblower Francis Haugen's testimony before Congress today, calling for regulations on Facebook. Worries surrounding China's property sector going beyond Evergrande as another developer has defaulted on one of its debt payments. Fantasia Holdings failed to pay a $206 million payment yesterday, this after the company just weeks ago reassured investors it had sufficient working capital and no liquidity issue. Fitch estimates Fantasia has roughly $3 billion of local and international bond payments to make between now and the end of the next year. Fantasia shares were halted in overnight trading in Hong Kong. And the Federal Reserve is working with the Office of Inspector General to examine trades made by some central bank officials last year. The IG's office is looking at whether those transactions met ethics standards or broke the law. The move comes after financial disclosures showed that Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan and Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren all made significant financial transactions last year. Brian? Yeah, and two of the three of those gentlemen are out right now. We'll see what happens with the third as well. Richard Clarida, a well-known exactly. name to our audience. Big inquiry there. Silvana, we'll yep. see you in a few minutes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right, now let's get back to your money on this Tuesday and the ongoing route for technology. As we said, the NASDAQ down six of the last seven sessions. Some of the biggest names in that group, among those bearing the brunt, Facebook. We just talked about it. The biggest loser of the bunch. Pay attention to Facebook. It is down more than 13% since the beginning of last month. Some of the other big names, down 6 to 8% in that same time. The question, though, is what do we do now? For more, let's bring in Alan McKnight. He is Chief Investment Officer at Regions Bank. Alan, good to have you on Worldwide Exchange. Thanks for getting up early for us. We appreciate it. Uh, what are you advising your team and your clients to do about the stock market and big tech in particular? Well, it's certainly been a challenging situation over the last month, but what we still believe is that investors should be constructive on technology and constructive on the stock market more broadly. Because while we've had this little dip here in downdraft, which is not unexpected in the month of September, we think that as you get through the end of the year and into 2022, there'll be a lot more opportunities and we'll start to see a continued lift as earnings um, continue to improve. And hopefully we'll get a little bit of positive uh, news flow coming out of earnings season in the next couple of weeks. You know, speaking with a, a trader on Wall Street the other day, and he basically said, you know what, Brian, we've given up. We used to have bears and we had bulls. Now we only have bulls and those that are reluctant bulls. He basically implied Wall Street has learned no matter what happens, you hold your nose as much as you hate it and you buy the dip because the upward market forces are stronger than the down market forces, even if we get a drop. Would you kind of agree with that sentiment, even if maybe the fundamentals or the valuations or whatever don't always make sense at the moment? I think long-term, the trend is your friend, to your point. And there's an old adage that I used to hear starting out in the business, which is bulls make money and bears make money, but hogs get slaughtered. And I think when you think about it from the bull side of the house, the, the earnings situation is still good. It may not be perfect, but it is good. 
And when you think of it versus, say, the bond market and you think of where we are with yields, where we basically had a multi-decade bull market in bonds, it's really tough to get excited about the bond market right now. So when you look at risk assets, there is an actual opportunity there if you can wait and you can see earnings really lift into the valuations that we're currently holding. So we're still constructive on it, but we acknowledge that it's challenging with all the noise going on out there, particularly with what's happening in D.C., what's happening with the Fed. There's no lack of negative news flow coming out. Some big stories out there. You mentioned it. I mean, we'll see what what if any of these spending bills get through. Oh, by the way, another property developer in China missing an interest payment. We'll get to more on that as well. Inflation, it may be here to stay a lot longer. So with all that in mind, Alan, you're saying sort of go long and strong or at least stay steady. What parts of the market, what stocks, what groups, what, whatever, look best to you and your team? So you nailed it. It's staying steady. It's not trying to hit the home run. We believe that you should still have an overweight to stocks. We think that that's really the opportunity set right now, particularly vis-a-vis bonds. But then when you start to narrow that lens, as you look within the market, we're still constructive on large cap equities, domestic equities. We feel that large cap um, stocks should have better opportunity sets than maybe their small cap brethren right now, particularly in light of some of the noise coming out, both on an international basis but also what's coming out of Washington. And then when you look a little bit within the sector rotation, we still think that cyclicals can do well. We've already seen it with the financials and the energy set, but we also think things like industrials can do well as we start to push through um, the Delta variant and we start to get to more of a normalized economic outlook as it relates to from the coming out of the pandemic. I don't even remember what normal looks like anymore, Alan, but hopefully whatever it looks like, we're getting there. Alan McKnight of Regents Financial. Alan, thanks for coming on. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. we got a lot more to do, folks. And when we come back on this Tuesday, you're welcome. We're going to kick off your holiday shopping list because we're going to bring you Piper Sandler's 2021 Teen Spending Survey. Find out which brands are hot, which brands are not. And then much more on Facebook as pressure grows in the company to change. Does that change? You become at the very top. And let's get ready to gamble because we're going to hear from Bally, CEO and its chairman at the Global Gaming Expo in Las Vegas. You've got a lot more to do. Dow Futures up 118. We will see you on the other side of this short break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
All right, welcome or welcome back and good Tuesday morning, everybody. Well, it is that time of year again. No, not fall, although it is that time of year. It is the time of year when Piper Sandler rolls out its biannual Taking Stock with Teens report, asking about 10,000 teenagers in 44 states what companies and stores and brands they like. All right, some of the key takeaways maybe from the report. Teen spending still way below its peak of 2006. That was over $3,000. Of course, everybody was throwing money around then. But teen spending did rebound from its pandemic lows. And guess what? Clothing is now the top spending priority for teens for the first time in seven years. And that unseats the reigning number one, which is food. Although as the father of a teenager, I can assure you that food is still way up there. Nike remains number one in terms of apparel and footwear spending, adding to its 11-year run in the top spot. All right, I've said enough. Joining us now with more is the actual author of that report, Piper Sandler, Senior Consumer Research Analyst and Managing Director, Aaron Murphy. Aaron, this is the 21st year of this survey that you and your team and Piper Sandler has done in its many iterations, and we appreciate you getting up early to come on and tell us about it. Uh, how is Nike staying so hot, and are there any threats to its throne? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Brian, for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Um, So Nike has been an incredible story within our survey work over the last several years. And I think taking a step back, there's a very broad casualization cycle that has just continued. And I think for some, they felt that as soon as the reopening play started, you'd start to see a setback of some of these athletic or casual brands. And I think these teams are here to tell us that that is not the case. The casual lifestyle remains. And so whether it's hot sneaker drops like Jordan, which continue to place Nike as the number one footwear brand, 57% share, or just their ongoing connection to their consumer, placing it at 27% of the apparel vote, um, it has not slowed in any momentum. I'm a Southern California kid by birth, so I've got a little natural place in my heart for Vans. I see some of the kids wearing them as well. Makes me feel good about myself. Does is Vans still hot? So we're seeing it slow in our survey. That was one thing that, you know, if you ask me what surprised me, despite 91% of teens being back in person this year, which historically Vans has been a very important back to school play, it did slip about 500 basis points. So it is the number two brand. I think that's important to take in context, but we're really starting to see other brands like Converse, which Nike owns, and even Crocs start to really gain momentum with this younger consumer. All right, now let's talk about something which is a little bit uncomfortable because it is a, you know, it is an issue, but it does fall into your survey, and that is weight gain. Uh, Every survey, every study out there shows that teenagers and adults alike tended to gain weight, sometimes a lot of weight during during the pandemic. As such, as we're stepping back out, I think your report said 91% of kids are back in school in person, should be 100%, but whatever. Uh, And unfortunately, a lot of those kids are going to have to buy new outfits, clothing, topping food as number one. Who's winning? Yeah, well, within the clothing rankings, I mean, clearly we've talked about Nike, Lululemon, another really important apparel brand that has been surprising us for years that despite being positioned as an upper income brand, it is gaining in momentum. It's the number four apparel brand now. And then another brand just to keep on everyone's radar is Shein. This is a Chinese-based e-commerce 
cross-border fashion company that is now the number six apparel brand among all teens. Again, that is among 10,000 teens in our survey. And it also is the number two website gaining share as it moves towards Amazon at number one. All right, going to keep an eye on that brand as well. On a macro level, Aaron, give us your thoughts. Having done this so many years, what was kind of the most eye-opening or surprising thing to you on a macro level from your survey? Sure. So I think this was a very important survey from a perspective of we're getting some good data points as we move through reopening. And so the fact that apparel is moving up, again, you said it best, seven years uh, or the highest it's been in seven years as a priority with the wallet. We do think that there is an accelerated apparel replenishment cycle. We saw from a trend perspective, increasing mentions of denim, high-waisted denim, flare, baggy look. So we think there's a new silhouette change that, that is coming in. And that is very important for ongoing apparel replenishment. The other kind of key takeaway, which didn't get as much press thus far, but is on the beauty side. These teens are moving a little bit more into understated cosmetic looks. They're not going away from the category, but they are spending less than they used to. And instead, they're spending more on fragrance and on hair care. So a little shift in the beauty wallet as well. You got you to gotta throw the perfume or cologne on a little bit, Aaron, especially, you know, at, at 5.20 in the morning. What, 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 it's good. Thank God there's no smell-o-vision coming, coming through the screen, at least in the Sullivan household. Aaron Murphy of Piper Sandler, great report. Nike staying on top. Clothes are back in a big way, and smelling good is better than maybe looking good. Aaron, we appreciate it as always. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you so much. All right, on deck. It is only 518 in the morning after all. You gotta smell good. So why don't you grab another cup of coffee, maybe an Ely, and get ready because we are talking about why coffee prices have soared lately and how the iconic company is dealing with it. Some of their new offerings coming up. A one-on-one with the CEO of Ely Cafe ahead. What could be better timing at this hour of the day? Dow Futures up 122. We are back right after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome or welcome back. Bally's finalizing its $2.7 billion deal to buy GameSys as it looks to lean on the UK online game operator to help expand its online casino offerings. Now, the new combo company also includes a C-suite shuffle with GameSys CEO Lee Fenton now serving as Bally CEO. Contessa Brewer spoke with Fenton and Chairman Sue Kim amid the Global Gaming Expo in Las Vegas. Sue, Lee, it's great to see you. Congratulations on the closing of the deal. Um, tell me, if you will, Sue, what does GameSys bring to the table that Bally's sure. didn't have? It's a leading uh, UK operator. Um, uh, it's actually uh, a top five operator in the UK. Um, and the only one of top ten that leads without sports. So uh, it's actually iGaming and bingo-led. 
um, actually generates uh, incredible margins, it's the highest margins of that group, of the peer group. And frankly, traded at a very reasonable multiple. So it's a more mature business, and so it did not trade at these huge valuations as some of the online gaming companies do here in the U.S. So, Lee, you're coming on. You, you're now the CEO of this combined company, Bally's. Where are you seeing opportunities to bring GameSys know-how to Bally's? So I think one of the things that appealed to us when we first looked at the deal was the amazing combination, and nothing's going in the bin here. So Bally's had sports. We didn't have the sports side. They obviously have the retail footprint, the market access. From our side, we bring a huge tech stack, sustainable at scale, and we bring a lot of the algorithms and, and the, the know-how of how we use our data online to drive growth. You also are looking at fantasy sports with this acquisition of Monkey Knife Fight, which is not new, but it sort of fits into this omni-channel platform What's next? Well, I think that uh, really there's almost unlimited growth is really all different ways to engage customers, even without gaming, but um, um, with uh, engagement, uh, audience engagement. Because really, if you think about what sports viewing is currently, it's a very lean-back experience, right? Which is really what separates sports, um, traditional sports viewing versus you know, if you go to a stadium or arena, it's very much like participatory, yeah. right? You get to express your opinion all the time. And also, if you look at, you know, esports and online, like live media, like, you know, TikTok Live, people are just writing chat and expressing themselves all the time. There are so many ways that we can bring that kind of audience engagement to actual live sports. And um, that have nothing to do with gaming. Gaming is just the end point, you know, where we can offer chat. But you're coming to this a lot later than some of your bigger competitors. How do you go about, Lee, attacking the interactive part of this? Oh, we don't mind that. We don't mind. We don't think we're late, necessarily. I think that we have, uh, we have a different approach to try and get into this game. And it's not spending $200 million a quarter on above the line advertising. If you look at where we've put our chips, it's mostly it's on those media partnerships. It's on the investment in our technology. And I think we'll approach customer acquisition in a very different way, really driving omnichannel. You know, we're going to be the first gaming company in the U.S. that's going to be equally online revenues with retail revenues, right? That changes the mindset, I think, within the company and makes us really aligned in terms of driving that omnichannel future. All right, well, our thanks to Contessa Brewer, as always, for that. And you can catch more of Contessa's interview at the Global Gaming Expo, including the CEOs of Caesar, MGM, FanDuel, and the chairman of Hard Rock all throughout the day here on CNBC. As somebody who was in Las Vegas just a couple of days ago, I can tell you I'm not sure I have ever seen it more crowded. Hours long wait for restaurants and even lines to sit down at a blackjack table. Truly remarkable. All right. Coming up here on WEX, your morning RBI and why history says it may be a good time to buy stocks. And a reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to follow our podcast. And later on today, we've got a big exclusive conversation with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Dow futures, they're higher. We're back right after this. Will it be a turnaround Tuesday? Futures, they are higher after Monday's big hit to big tech. 
Facebook under fire as a former executive makes damning claims about the company and how it deals with misinformation and teenage mental health. Is it time for Mark Zuckerberg to step down? Plus, why some big pharma headlines should be very good news when it comes to the fight against COVID. Top-ranked analyst Matthew Harrison is here. We're going to bring him to you with some news you've got to hear on this Tuesday, October 5th. And this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and good Tuesday morning. Thank you very much for joining us, as always, here on Worldwide Exchange. Let us get right now to these markets and your money as well, following the big punch to the gut that big tech took on Monday. Well, futures, the selling is not following through. Maybe a little good news there. They are rebounding just a bit. NASDAQ futures up one half of 1%. Of course, the index lost 2% yesterday, so we're not looking to gain that back right now, but at least the markets are in the green. We'll see if this Really consistent, always buy the dip type mentality holds up again today. Dow futures, by the way, up 122. But let us get right now to your top corporate story this morning, and that is Facebook. A former executive planning to testify in front of Congress today, highlighting some of the dangers of social media on society and kids and teens in particular. Today's appearance follows allegations that Facebook consistently puts profits before public safety or accurate information, and the whistleblower claims to have the documents to try to prove it. Still, Facebook scrambled to respond to some of those claims right here on CNBC Monday. If we were a company who didn't care about safety, if we were about trying to prioritize prioritize profit over safety, we wouldn't do this kind of research. The whole point is understanding how we can do better and make a better experience. Facebook has taken a tremendous number of steps to try to to bring more transparency, more accountability, more external engagement. Is there more that we can be doing? We're always working to improve the experience for the people who use our platform, and we will always continue to do that. But I do think that 3 billion people or more are using our platform on a daily basis because they do see us as a safe and secure place to communicate with their friends and family and to build community. Well, the latest controversy over Facebook and social media in general also getting the attention of the White House. Here is Press Secretary Jen Psaki yesterday afternoon. In our view, this is just the latest in a series of revelations about social media platforms uh, that make clear that self-regulation is not working. Our effort is going to be continue to uh, support fundamental reforms. Now, these allegations bringing renewed calls for more regulation. And on top of that, there was a more than five and a half hour outage for all Facebook products, even its internal company emails on Monday. All that hitting Facebook shares down four percent. They are rebounding a little bit in the pre-market up one and a half percent. Now, it wasn't just Facebook. Tech and social media stocks also generally feeling the pain. Pinterest down six percent Monday, Snap down five, Twitter almost six Alphabet down 2%, Apple down as well, Amazon falling 3%. Tough day for big tech. Let's talk more about all of it. And joining us now is Elazar Advisors Analyst covering tech, Haim Siegel, and Fast Company Editor-in-Chief Stephanie Meta. Thanks to you both for getting up early and coming on. Stephanie, I'm going to ask you a very direct question. Does Mark Zuckerberg need to step down? 
Mark Zuckerberg is not going anywhere. I think that um, he continues to have the support of his board. He has, you know, the majority of shares. He has super voting rights. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg himself has called for greater regulation of Facebook. What isn't clear is what level of regulation a company like Facebook is willing to accept. Is, is Facebook willing to give regulators access to its algorithms and systems? Are they willing to open their doors to um, field inspectors the way the banks have? Um, but my sense is Mark Zuckerberg is defiant and is not in any, it, it, even if there are calls for him to step down, it would be very hard to displace him. Yeah, and, and one quick follow-up to you, Stephanie, before we go to Haim. Yeah, you're exactly right. Nobody can force him out. He has got an ironclad grip on that company. To your point, super voting rights, hand-picked board, hand-picked executives. I mean, he's got a walled garden around him. I mean, an iron-walled garden around him. But increasingly, we see these – at some point, doesn't the buck have to step at the top? I mean, Facebook's always like, well, we're not a problem, and – but it's over and over and over again, and yet nothing ever changes. Yeah, well, and it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, there are two important constituencies here that we really haven't heard from. Well, we're hearing from the street now. I mean, the stock is down, as you pointed out, and I'd be really interested to hear what Hayam has to say about whether or not the stock can rebound. The other constituency we really haven't heard from are advertisers. I think if advertisers start to pull and start to say that they don't have faith in this company, it might be a different conversation. But for now, you know, the, the, the company continues to grow. The revenues are up. So it's very hard for you for one to argue that, you know, these two big constituencies have a problem with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go down to Hyman and talk about more on this. Hyman. We saw the stock get hit yesterday. It's down 13 percent in about a week or so. But let's be clear. It has had a heck of a run increasingly investors. Oh, and by the way, Facebook users don't seem to care. Everyone delete Facebook and then nobody does. Does the company actually take a business hit on this? Uh, I, I would think that there's going to be some uh, backlash, but... Um, you know, I think the company has some bigger issues just with the numbers. I'm sure this is a tiny hit. Um, they just are facing tough comps as we go into Q4 and Q1, you know, with that pandemic boom that they had. And, um, you know, what you guys talked about before, I think they're in a little bit of a secular boom after the pandemic. You know, just people are just back online and excited about it and advertisers have followed them. So, I don't I don't think that's a big story right now. I mean, if they stayed, if they stayed down till today, I mean, then watch out. But, you know, thank goodness they got back up and running. Yeah, they and they did. Hyman. I'll go back to you on that. Why do you think that advertisers just kind of, you know, maybe hold their nose or look the other way, even with all this controversy around the company? Is it just that the Facebook is the platform, at least for certain age groups, maybe not children, but older it is the platform they have to be on. Look, if you're if you're an advertiser, you know, you care about ROI and you have the ability through Facebook, 
um, probably more than other networks, uh, to reach your customer directly. Um, I mean, they have amazing algorithms that advertisers are just excited about the last decade or so. And, uh, you know, once you start seeing ROI on, on your spend, you know, you're not going to leave them so fast. And I, I do think that there's a lot of hype in the media. I mean, a lot of politicians are trying to grab airtime and things like that. I mean, sure, social media has a lot of issues. There's no doubt about that. But um, I've been of the thinking all the time I've been covering Facebook, and it's a little bit annoying because I care about earnings. And I actually think the opposite. I think Facebook cares about its customer experience uh, as much or more than earnings. And they've taken a hit with or without the government in the past just to make it a better experience for their customers. And sometimes things don't pay out for them in the next quarter or next year, which, you know, I like things to get paid right now, but, you know, I, I respect what they're doing, but look, they're, they're, you know, the 800 pound gorilla that they're, they have a lot of balls in the air and, you know, they're going to have to deal with constant issues. I mean, you know, they're running a giant nation organization. So of course they're going to, you know, have the magnifying glass on them. Well, and they do. And, and it, by, by the way, Stephanie, it is actually, I mean, we talk about partisan differences in this country, and there's not a lot of things that the two teams seem to agree on, but apparently social media regulation is one of those things. We just showed a graphic with Marsha Blackburn, a Republican, and Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat. It does feel like there's some bipartisan, at least, agreement on social media regulation, but does that mean Congress is going to do anything or they're just going to, you know, grandstand, say some words, and then everything kind of goes on. Yeah, I, I hate to be cynical about it, but I, I think this is a, an issue that while there is um, agreement that there should be something done, what Congress should do, what regulators should do is you know, the devil is in the details, to use the old cliche. And if this is not a, a, a Congress that has shown a real willingness to dig into the technological details. And as I said earlier, you know, what does regulation of these platforms look like? We heard from Jen Psaki, we've heard from members of Congress. I haven't heard anything that suggests that there is an actual proposal on how to regulate these organizations and what that regulation yeah. looks like. Well, maybe changing Section 230 from 20 years ago, we'll see. And of course, yesterday, pretty much everybody seems to agree Instagram for children's a bad idea. But the Facebook exec on <laughs> yesterday said, basically implied, we're going to go forward with that anyway. Heim Siegel and Stephanie Mehta, great conversation. You. Appreciate you getting up early. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Brian. So thank you. All right. Coming up, despite that, we do have some good news, some stock stats in your morning RBI. If you are long stocks, you're going to want to hear this. Plus... Why that cup of coffee you are probably drinking right now may cost a lot more ahead. The CEO of coffee legend Ely joining us now with more on that and some of the new things they're rolling out. But as we head to break, some of the other top stories on this Tuesday, a federal judge ordering Tesla to pay $137 million to a former employee over accusations of a hostile work environment and racism. Workers' lawyers say the case was only able to move forward because their client did not sign one of Tesla's mandatory arbitration agreements. Rent the Runway filing for an IPO, the fashion rental company revealing its subscriber base crushed during the pandemic, but is resumed growing once again. And California Governor Gavin Newsom declaring a state of emergency over that oil spill along California's southern coast. The Coast Guard investigating whether a large commercial ship set anchor in the wrong location, damaging 
That oil pipeline that has crushed some of the beaches in beautiful Huntington Beach, California, and elsewhere. We are back right after this. All right, welcome back. Well, you probably noticed that your daily cup or cups of coffee cost a lot more lately. It is in part because the drought in Brazil has cut their crop short and wholesale coffee prices are now at seven-year highs. But for many of us, coffee is not a nice-to-have. It is certainly a must-have. Good morning, everybody out there. And few know more about coffee and the consumer than Ili Cafe. Joining us now is Massimiliano Pogliani. He is the CEO of Ili and joining us now, Massimiliano. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and, and cheers on the coffee as well, because I can assure you, hosting this show, I consume more than my fair share of your product. So we do appreciate it. Before we get into sustainability and everything else, uh, do you see wholesale prices of coffee coming down at all? Or are these costs and prices here to stay? Well, it's a kind of a perfect storm right now because it's not only the prices of coffee going up, it's, coffee. it's all the raw materials are a little bit going up. So uh, coffee, raw materials, oil, etc. So uh, this is uh, something we are facing, not only the coffee company, but all the companies in the world. And sometimes it's linked to the kind of getting out of the COVID situation that has created some turbulence and some shortage of materials, etc. Sometimes it is due to things that you can't control at all, like climate. In this case, the you know the the drought in, in or and the and the frost in, in Brazil. Yeah, and, and there's human issues as well too, you know. And, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of corporate speak. To be perfectly blunt, Massimiliano, especially in the United States, about doing well or doing good, you know, the advertisements say one thing, but companies tend to sometimes do the other thing. Talk to <laughs> us about your direct grower program and buying from actually the women and men farmers who grow the beans. I mean, coffee, like everything else, has become a giant industrialized industry, which is normal and fine. But we have to support these local farmers in part because they're also just, to your point, dealing with constant climate change and problems. Yeah, that's that's key. I mean, regardless what is happening right now, so the drought, the frost, etc., our approach has always been, you know, we have to take care of the community. We have to share the value that we create. So not only with the shareholder, but also with all the stakeholders. And at the beginning of this value chain, we, we have the growers, the coffee growers. So not now, but since the, since uh, since 30 years and more and more, I mean, this is part of the DNA of the company. We have always had a direct uh, approach with the growers. So because that is the only way to ensure the high quality that we want and we need, but with a couple with sustainability. So the two cannot be separated. You know, there is no such a product that is high quality if this product is not sustainable. So you need to take care of that, starting from the coffee grower. And sustainability as a whole. So not only economical sustainability, of course, so paying the fair price, ensuring that they're making profit, ensure that they have the money to invest, ensure that if they make higher quality, they get a premium for that, but also environmental and social sustainability. So taking care of the land where they grow the coffee, because I mean, certain, uh, you know, species of Arabica, they only grow in certain areas, they only deliver that quality, and we need that terroir, that climate to get to that level of quality. So we need to preserve the land. So we need to work with them 
through our University mm -hmm. of Coffee, to our Green Coffee team, to teach them how to grow coffee and impacting as low as possible on the, you know, on the land that they are working on. And last but not least, we need, we need to take care yeah. of the communities. Because if they don't stay there, if they move somewhere else, again, we do not have any more the coffee coming from that region. Well, and you are coming to our region as well, selling 20% to a New York-based private equity firm. Look forward to more Ely Cafe cafes in New York <laughs> City and the United States as well. And personally, I will say thank you for waking me up every morning. Massimiliano Pogliano. Thank Ely. you. Thank you. Me. Have a great day, sir. Appreciate it. Thank Ciao. you for bringing a lawyer customer. Ciao. Uh, all right, you're very welcome. All right, up next, top-ranked analyst Matthew Harrison is here on why there may be some really good news coming in COVID treatments. It is news you've got to hear. And as we head to break, a look at the new CNBC documentary, Generation Gamble, appearing tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Melissa Lee exploring the booming popularity of sports betting and trading apps among young investors. It's on you to kind of realize like what you want to do with your money and how risky you want to be. You have to just be smart about kind of what you invest in. So what does your portfolio look like now? I believe I have a stock in Tesla. I have a stock in NEO. Oh, I did invest in Dogecoin too. Do you realize that Dogecoin yeah. was started as a joke? Yes. Yes, that's why it's called Doge. It's after the, the meme. After the dog. And you're in it. Yeah, why not? Time now for your morning RBI. And today's most random but interesting thing is short and hopefully sweet because it has to do with stocks. I mean, hey, what else after yesterday's trouncing for tech, right? And even though you know the stats, the NASDAQ down past six, the past seven sessions, many tech stocks took a hit on Monday, here is one that may make you feel a little bit better. That's our job in the morning. According to truest strategist Keith Lerner, the fourth quarter is historically a very solid one. In fact, going back to 1950, get this, stocks have risen 79% of the time with an average gain of 4%. And Lerner wrote to clients Friday to use any weakness in the market to add to positions in the weeks ahead. I guess he nailed the weakness part, right? And he also says take a look at small caps, saying they might be ripe for a buy after one of, quote, the most extreme periods of underperformance in the past decade. So that is certainly something to watch. And as you know, small caps are domestic American stories. So they may benefit as it looks like COVID is on the run in many former hotspots. Hospitalizations, by the way, down 20% across America in just two weeks. Some good news. So imagine that. Perhaps two pieces of good news in just one segment. Hard to believe, but you're welcome. Which leads us perfectly into your next guest, a guy whose team has done as much work on COVID and the vaccines as anybody on Wall Street, Matthew Harrison, Analyst at Morgan Stanley joining us now once again with his must-read notes. Uh, Matthew, it's great to have you back on. Appreciate all you and your team have done to keep us informed for the last 18 months or so on COVID and everything else. Uh, a tough question to ask to begin. Um, there's still one, there's one and a half million unvaccinated but eligible people in New York City as we're heading into the cold weather, in, in other words, inside. Do you guys foresee some kind of a late fall or winter surge in the Northeast? It's a good question, Brian. And, and I think for us, um, it, it's not unreasonable to expect at least some increase in cases as we go into the winter. You know, we're, we're hopeful that that's going to be the last increase that we see or the last substantial increase in, in the U.S., um, but we would expect to see cases increase. All right. Well, hopefully, do you think if we do, 
And it's, you know, following this. I know seasonality is a dirty word, Matthew, but it certainly appears that way. Do you think that will be the last peak? That will be it? Um, you know, our view has always been that we need to get to the second half of 2022 to really end the pandemic globally. I, I think if we can get through the winter season in the U.S., that might put us on a, on a good trajectory. Um, obviously, we'll have to see how significant it is. Um, but, but assuming no other variants, um, I, I think that could be a, a reasonable conclusion. All right. Well, on Friday, the, the Merck news came out about the, the likelihood of the oral COVID treatment, its efficacy as well. It's not approved yet. It still has to be approved, but it certainly looks very good. And I was in Las Vegas and we were kind of like almost hugging and laughing about it, saying this seems like a game changer. Merck rose nicely. The market moved a little bit. Are we underestimating the impact of this potential Merck news? I think, you know, from a direct perspective, right, the, the market gave a lot of credit to Merck. Um, and, you know, if you look more broadly than that, I think this is just one piece in the in the in the available treatment. So you you have for healthy uh, young people, oral antivirals could could be very good if you get infected or a breakthrough infection. But there's still a lot of other people that are at risk. And so those are at higher risk, may need antibodies. And then I think the important thing for everybody to remember is that vaccines are the primary prevention tool and still the only way that we really get ourselves in a good position and to get out of the pandemic is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Yeah, and vaccination rates have actually ticked up lately, which it's, itself is good news. And by the way, this is not just Mark as well. You're our COVID specialist, but you are a pharma and biotech analyst by trade. Talk to us about Pfizer and Roche and some of their uh, treatment, oral, you know, pill-based treatments for COVID, how are they looking? Because if we can get three treatments in addition to vaccine, we can all see the damn finish line on this plague. Pardon my French. Sure, Brian. Yeah. So there are, there are two other oral drugs in development, uh, one from Pfizer and one from a smaller company called Atea. Um, both of those treatments are in phase three studies. We expect data on both of those before the end of the year. Um, and you know we're hopeful that we see good data out of them. Uh, hard to say if they're gonna compare exactly um, to Merck, but, but they're both uh, from the initial data look promising. All right, now finally, I wanna end with this and I'm gonna ask you to guess a little bit. We talk about the endemic stage, seeing other countries basically say, COVID's here to stay. We're going to learn even New Zealand and Australia, who pursued these COVID zero policies forever and it, and it didn't work, have now said, OK, we're going to have to live with this. When do you think we get to that endemic stage in the United States? I, I think people want to see what happens this winter. Um, if, if we can get through the winter without significant surges broadly across the country, I think that's going to make people feel a lot better. And I think, as you pointed out, right. As we enter 2022, we'll have hopefully more than one oral available. We'll have multiple antibodies available. So we'll have a broad range of treatment, um, which should further decouple hospitalization risk. Well, that is some good news. The Merck news is good as well. We'll see if the Pfizer and Roche studies come out. And because being able to just, even if we get COVID while vaccinated, take a pill, get better, hopefully... That is a great way to end the show. Matthew Harrison and Morgan Stanley Real, appreciate you and all your time and your work. Matthew, thank you. Thanks, Brian. 
All right, you're very welcome. All right, and with that, we end Worldwide Exchange. You got Dow futures up 130, NASDAQ futures up a couple of tenths of 1%. Crypto is up as well. Some good news to end the day. You are welcome, America. We'll see you tomorrow. Squawk of the gang are next. Cheers. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.